0: W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. A couple of announcements before we look into the Word. Remember, next Saturday we'll have the uh, ladies' prayer luncheon, correct? No, no, no ladies' prayer luncheon because we're having the tree trimming in the afternoon. I just want to make sure that there was a point of confusion uh, earlier. Okay, no uh, prayer lun- ladies' prayer luncheon. There'll be the tree trimming. Party time for some uh, for the kids, bring your grandkids. We're going to sing some Christmas carols, put the, decorate the tree and probably eat sugar and drink caffeine so everybody <laughs> will get good and wired. Good American tradition. That will be at 2 o'clock this coming Saturday. Also, remind you, there are order blanks on the table for DVDs, and that is in-house only at this point. We will probably get all of our procedures together and be able to offer DVDs uh, over the Internet by the uh, first of the year. Well, before we get started, we need to make sure we're ready to focus on the Word, ready to learn what God has to teach us today, be challenged by His Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we come before you in gratitude for all that you have provided for us, that you have given us everything related to life and, the, and godliness, that you have provided us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, that you have provided us with the tools, the mechanics, the promises, the procedures to face every issue in life, that we may have stability, that we may have happiness and joy, no matter what our circumstances may be, And rather than being slaves to circumstances or situations, we are uh, living as ambassadors for you in this world. And we pray that we might keep before our thinking the fact that we are indeed ambassadors, that we are serving here temporarily as witnesses to your grace. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that we may be refreshed and challenged, that we may understand the things that are taught and that the God the Holy Spirit would make these things real to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in a basic series, so therefore I keep trying to keep things basic. I was talking with a friend of mine last week, and I said the hardest thing is when, is, is when I'm teaching basics is to not think too much about what it is that I'm teaching because I'm really trying to keep this at a level that, that we can use to give to believers who don't know much about the Christian life or to unbelievers who may not even be saved so that this is at a level that they can understand with very little biblical frame of reference. We live in a day-to-day that is so sad that that the the unsaved, the normal person living out there and the United States of America has almost no biblical knowledge today. Unlike generations before, they at least were acquainted with it in some cultural sense. There was, they were allowed to talk about Bible and biblical stories at, in public schools, and they did in public schools. So there was a a cultural awareness, and and much of English literature historically, not most of the contemporary. Uh, shallow, superficial, postmodern, existential, depressing stuff that kids have to read in school today. But historical English literature that was written before the early, ninth or early 20th century has a multitude of allusions to biblical names, events, circumstances, and and people. Today are just so ignorant biblically that they can't understand. Uh, those particular things. So we really have to, in some ways, bring things down to that uh, lower shelf. And then even when I get to the lower shelf, I think, oh, gee, I'm 10 feet over their head. So I'm trying not to, as I said, think too much. Yeah, I start thinking on this. I start coming up with all kinds of new ideas and developing new things. And, and this is just a a basic series to get us the foundations related to the Christian life and living the Christian life. So we covered basic five spiritual skills, one lesson each. Confession, walking by the Holy Spirit, faith, rest, drill, grace, orientation, doctrinal orientation. And now I'm focusing on the responsibilities of the priesthood and then the duties of our ambassadorship. And that is crucial to living the Christian life. We have spiritual skills that precede the function of our Christian life in terms of priesthood and ambassadorship. The functions of the priesthood, duties of our ambassadorship, are the outgrowth, the consequence of spiritual growth and spirituality, Uh, the way that's usually taught in many... Churches, in many circumstances, is that the duties of the ambassadorship, the priestly responsibilities are the means of spiritual growth. So you have to go witness, you have to pray, you have to read your Bible, you have to give to be spiritual. And they put the cart before the horse, they get things reversed, and so it reduces itself to a legalistic approach fundamentally to the Christian life, let's get everybody doing, doing, doing some sort of overt thing and then the result is that they'll be spiritual and the result is we have the mess that we're in today in Christianity. In fact, if any of you take the Houston Chronicle, I would encourage you to read an article that was on the front page of the religion section in the Chronicle in yesterday's paper and it was talking about a book that came out uh, don't have the article in front of me or the title, but it's a book by James Davison Hunter, who is a sort of evangelical sociologist. He's written a number of books over the last 20 years with his sort of evaluating with his his finger on the pulse of what's happening in uh, contemporary evangelicalism. And he's talking about the fact that we have become so, uh, we have confused marketing and materialism with spirituality and, and Bible study that uh, actual Bible study has just been uh, destroyed and compromised in the process and the average evangelical today is devoid of any sense of moral absolutes or moral certainty. And so the moral compass of the contemporary Christian has been completely destroyed. And you go into your standard evangelical church, which ought to be a beacon on a hill, which ought to be a light to the world, a shining example of spiritual excellence, and they're no different from the culture around them. In fact, recent uh, surveys have shown that even though some people want to challenge it, I don't think it's challengeable, that the divorce rate inside the church is as high as the divorce rate outside the church. And what difference does doctrine make? Well, it doesn't seem to be making any difference in in the lives of people who are in church. You look at uh, children, you look at problems that teenagers have in terms of uh, premarital sex, problems with drugs, problems with uh, cheating in school. In fact, uh, it was interesting when I began to teach at the college this year. I sat down with an old friend of mine who's been teaching there for, I don't know, 10 or 12 years and I taught there originally some 20 years ago and one of the things he told me is you have to be very careful because it's standard operating procedures for the students to cheat. I thought cheating at a Christian liberal arts school? Well, yeah they they don't know any different. They've been cheating ever since they were in kindergarten. It's the standard operating procedure of the world and nobody has really has really challenged them that this is wrong. It's contrary to their, to their spiritual life, and they just think of this as, this is how they live. The world is so much inside the church today that Christians are no longer living and setting the standard by living according to the Word. They just come to church for entertainment and in order to stroke God, so God will give them blessings. And that's the message that comes out in most churches today. So we're in a sad state, and we need basic doctrine. just needs to be communicated to so many people. So that's the reason for... This series, and last Sunday we began to teach on prayer and I talked about the priority of prayer. We began with a the, emphasizing our priesthood first peter two five that we are built up are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, that concept of offering up spiritual sacrifices is the function of our priesthood. Now, the role of a priest is to represent man to God. The role of a prophet was to represent God to man. And in Romans 12, 1, we read, "...I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies and the the reason he uses that word "bodies" isn't just talking about the physical part of man, but it is a term that references all of us, the totality of our person. Uh, it's a figure of speech where a part represents the whole, and so he says that you present your bodies, a living. Sacrifice wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service that 's the same idea that peter 's talking about here. This is the role of the believer as in his priesthood is to that his life is a is worship to god it 's not just something that is compartmentalized to Sunday morning or Wednesday night Bible class or Tuesday night Bible class or something of that nature. It is the totality of our life and we offer up spiritual sacrifices. In that sense, it is our devotion to God. And part of our priesthood is the operation of prayer. And we talked about uh, the definition of prayer then, and this is the lengthy definition. If you weren't here last time, you're going to have a little trouble getting it all down. But prayer is the grace provision of the royal priesthood whereby the church-age believer has access and privilege to communicate directly with God. That's the first part of the definition. It's based on grace. Everything in the Christian life is based on grace. The concept of prayer in the church age is different from prayer in previous dispensations because we are united with Jesus Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection as a result of the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. He is our high priest. And we are a priesthood, so therefore we have direct access to God, just as priests in the Old Testament had access to God, priests in the New Testament have access to God, but every believer in the New Testament is a priest. So we have access and privilege to communicate directly with God. We can come boldly before the throne of grace. Now the second part of the definition is what we'll get into some this morning and then next week, and that is the procedures of prayer, the parts of prayer, the different types of communication. So, in the definition we read, the purpose of this communication is to acknowledge our sin, that is confession, to express adoration and praise to God, to give thanks, expression of gratitude and thanksgiving, to intercede for others, and to convey our own personal needs petitions, and to conduct intimate conversations with God. That's what prayer is. It's an intimate conversation with God. And as we grow and mature as believers, that begins to dominate our life and our thinking as our standard uh, way of operating as believers. So we're breaking it down into uh, five categories. We talked about the priority of prayer last time. The priority of prayer, this is a high priority for the Christian life mandated in the New Testament. And I was pleased to see that uh, as a result of my teaching last Sunday and emphasizing the importance of corporate prayer that we find in the Scripture, that we had almost standing room only in prayer meeting uh, Wednesday. I mean Tuesday night. So we have prayer meeting for the church at 7.30, and it was good to see so many show up. Uh, Tonight, or this morning rather, we're talking about the prerequisites for prayer. And we may get into the procedures for prayer. We will then conclude next time with a summation of the principles of prayer and look at some of the promises for prayer and what they say and what they don't say. Often prayer promises are ripped out of context. And people try to make them say either more than they're saying or they make them say something that they're not saying at all. So we have to look at some of the key promises that we have for prayer. Prayer is part of our priesthood and it is part of our function as believers to go before the throne of grace and obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So prayers and priorities we saw last time. It is our communication lifeline to God the Father. And as a child of God, we go to the Father with everything. He desires for us to bring everything before Him. There's nothing too trivial, nothing too minor, no detail too insignificant in our lives for us to bring uh, before Him as a matter of of our uh, Christian life. Our model in the Christian life, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He set the pattern for the spiritual life of the church age. He was the pioneer. He is the one who demonstrated for us how to uh, solve problems in the spiritual life during the period of the incarnation leading up to the cross. As such, in his perfect humanity, he prayed often and he prayed for prayed frequently. Mark one thirty five is one of many verses I referenced last Sunday morning, which indicate something about his prayer life. There we read, now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Now, as I pointed out last time, for those of you who aren't morning people and who are challenged in your uh, your, your daily time clock that doesn't mean that you need to get up early in the morning before dawn in order to pray and be spiritual the point here is he chose a time when there were no distractions when of course it wouldn't apply to him but when the phone's not ringing when there's not uh, interference from people coming by or work or whatever finding a time when you're, you're able to isolate yourself from the, any distractions, and focus on the Lord and, and praying. And there's different ways that we can uh, pray. Sometimes folks say, well, how in the world could you pray for an hour or for two hours? And we'll talk about that a little bit uh, this week and next week as well. We saw that other scriptures in the New Testament indicate this priority. So it's not just something the Lord did, but the early church followed that example. In Acts 2.42 we read, and they, that is the the early church from the day of Pentecost, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. The word translated continued steadfastly is the Greek word proskartereo, which means continuously it was a priority. They were faithful in the procedures of the Christian life, they made it a priority they focused on two things doctrine and fellowship fellowship is then broken down into two components breaking of bread which is communion and prayer which is communication so you have communion with god and communication with god telling us that fellowship in this verse is not talking about fellowship with other believers it is talking about fellowship with god And so the priority in the early church was the study of the Word of God and fellowship with God as demonstrated in communion and prayer. This is why we have corporate prayer. It's not just an emphasis on individual believers praying, but the body of Christ coming together in prayer. And there are many examples in the book of Acts where you have the believers coming together to pray for specific situations. Acts 6.4 uses this same word again, this time talking about the role of the apostles. If you remember in Acts 6, this is when the body of believers in Jerusalem had become so large. By this time, there were probably 10, 12,000 involved. And the apostles were getting a little bit overwhelmed with the administrative detail. So they appointed six men who became the prototype of deacons. And it was their responsibility to help distribute the financial gifts that were given to help those who were widows and others who were in desperate straits so that the apostles could focus on their primary job description, which is the teaching of the Word. So Acts 6.4 expresses the apostolic priority. Now there was a, there's a parallel here. The apostolic priority transfers to the pastor's priority. The priority of these six men who were chosen as servants becomes the pattern for deacons and the leadership among the congregation to help the pastor do their job. So the pastor's responsibility was prayer and the ministry of the Word. That's the pastor's job description. That's what God expects. When I teach pastors, I frequently tell them that at the judgment seat of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ is only going to be asking you about two things: one, did you feed my sheep, and two, did you equip the saints? When Jesus was teaching the disciples in uh, John chapter uh, 31, uh, yeah, John 31, he said to Peter, "If you love me, feed my sheep." Three times he made that point. That's the pastor's responsibilities to feed the sheep. It's not the pastor's responsibility to visit the sick in the hospital, to visit the visitors who come to the church, to uh, be involved in community uh, politics, or all of the other things that, that many churches expect their pastors to be doing. What God expects the pastors to be doing is feeding the sheep, not building the church. Jesus told Peter that it was on this rock, that is the recognition that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, that I will build my church. It's Jesus Christ's role to build the church. It is the pastor's job to feed the sheep. But what we have today in many churches, and most churches, is that the pastor is trying to build the church, and he leaves it up to untrained lay leadership, Sunday school teachers, whatever, to feed the sheep. And so the sheep don't know very much because the lay leadership doesn't know very much. Now, I know there are some places where there are exceptions to that, but they are few. Usually you have people who you have the blind leading the ignorant and you have major problems. So the apostolic priority was prayer. That's a pastor's priority is to pray for the congregation, to pray for those that God has given him charge over. Colossians 4.2, we find the same word again, pros Continue earnestly in prayer. Make it your priority. Be vigilant in it with thanksgiving. So this is the priority. We covered this last time and then 1 Thessalonians 5.17, to pray without ceasing. This is our priority. Prayer is not something that's secondary. Prayer is not something you, you address on occasion, but it's to be a major Item in your daily schedule. So, what are the prerequisites for prayer? Prerequisites for prayer. I always think of the, every time I think about prerequisites for prayer, I always go back to the same story. Some of you may remember this. In the late 70s, Bailey Smith, who was a very well-known pastor of a large uh, Baptist church in Oklahoma City, was uh, elected uh, president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And it was, I'm, it was either in his opening acceptance speech or in a sermon he preached not long after that to the, to the assembly, he made the statement that God doesn't hear the prayers of the Jews. And the press just took that and ran. They just vilified him. What, what a horrible thing to say is that God doesn't hear the prayers of some people. And, oh, there was this huge uproar. And, of course, in the kind of culture we're in, everybody has to be politically correct. And they put all this pressure on him. And I think he eventually was forced to apologize just to uh, so the uproar and the furor would, would die down. But he was absolutely correct. The Bible clearly says that God does not listen to everybody's prayers. You have passages such as Isaiah 115 where God is talking and He says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide My eyes from you. And He's talking to the Jews. He goes on to say, even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. See, the problem was, there is ongoing sin in the life of the nation and as a result of the carnality, God was not going to listen to their prayers. Jeremiah says the same kind of thing in Jeremiah 11.14. He tells Jeremiah specifically not to intercede for the people. So do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry out to me because of their trouble. So there are times when God does not listen to believers' prayers because of sin in the life, and there's also times that God doesn't listen to the prayers of unbelievers. God is not required to listen to every prayer. I think this assumption that God is supposed to listen to everybody's prayer is a result of American democratization of everything. Everybody ought to be able to do everything and everybody ought to have access to everything. Well that's not what the scriptures teach. Uh, the scriptures teach that God does not hear the prayers of the unsaved. He doesn't hear the prayers of the Buddhist. He doesn't hear the prayers of the Hindus. He doesn't hear the prayers of Mormons, he doesn't hear the prayer of Muslims, Scientologists, or Jews. He only hears prayers of those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, some people say, "Well, that's not fair." No, it is fair. It is just, and that's exactly what the issue is. The issue is the justice of God, because what the justice of God. What the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. And so if we are under condemnation from the justice of God because we don't meet God's righteous standard, then we cannot have a relationship with Him. Therefore, we can't communicate with God. So it is justice that is at the very heart of the problem. So the first issue, the first prerequisite for prayer is that we possess the same righteousness that God has. So we have to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ because at the instant that you put your faith alone in Christ alone, God gives you His very own righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5 says that He who knew no sin was made sin for us that the righteousness of God might be found in us. So once we have the righteousness of God, it's not our own righteousness, then there is a compatibility between the human being who possesses Christ's righteousness and God. And because of that, the human being is now able to come to God in prayer. But that's not the only only prerequisite. There is one other prerequisite and that has to do with our own mental attitude or spiritual status related to cleanliness. Psalm 66:18 we read, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So what we learn from this is that number 1, God won't listen to the prayers of unbelievers because they don't possess Righteousness. It's a justice issue. It is a fairness issue. And God is perfectly fair and perfectly just, and He won't listen to the prayers of unbelievers. Furthermore, He won't listen to the prayers of believers who are out of fellowship. So God is very discriminating in terms of who He will listen to. So we must be in fellowship. Remember, It is God who's the one who determines who can come to Him and have a relationship with Him. And it's God who determines what the protocol is for communicating with Him. It's not man, the creature. The creature doesn't dictate procedure to God. It's God who establishes the protocol and procedure for the creature. And that protocol is called grace. So we have four basic principles related to prayer and the prerequisites of grace. The first is that grace is the basis for prayer. It's not our works. It's not based on who we are, what we've done. It's not based on our personalities, our morality, or any other human factor. It's based upon God's character. And God, in His grace, provided the solution to the sin problem so that man can have a relationship with Him and that man can, therefore, communicate with Him And that was the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And according to the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, at the same instant that He is having the sins of the world poured out upon Him, something miraculous happened in the temple. In the temple you had a veil. This veil was tightly woven, was about six inches thick, and it hung and separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies was where the Ark of the Covenant had been kept when they had it, and at that time they didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. But the veil symbolized that man did not have direct access to God. Only the high priest could have access to God. And at the instant that Jesus was, or during those three hours when Jesus was paying the penalty for our sins, that veil was torn, it was ripped from top, To bottom. It was a miraculous event indicating that access to God was now open. And that is God's grace. Prayer is not based on who we are just because we're nice, we're wonderful, just because God ought to listen to us. Grace is based on the work of Christ on the cross. So that leads to the second principle, which is first and foremost, a person must be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ before. He can have access to the throne of grace. Prayer is for believers only, not for unbelievers. Third, believers have to be in fellowship. They have to confess their sins, which means to admit or to acknowledge their sins to God the Father and to be in fellowship. At that instant, we're cleansed from all unrighteousness, forgiven of our sins, And God hears that prayer from the believer that's out of fellowship. It means simply to say, Father, I've lied, I've cheated, I've lusted, I've gossiped, I've maligned. It is merely an acknowledgment of our sin. And then our fourth point, God provides prayer as a means to communicate with Him... And every believer has the same opportunity and the same privilege to come before the throne of grace. And this is part of the distinctiveness of our church-age priesthood. So we have two prerequisites, salvation for the unbeliever and cleansing through confession for believer. There's only one prayer that God hears from the unbeliever, and that is a prayer related to positive volition, a prayer something like, God, I want to know who you are. I want to know more about you. That's the only kind of prayer God listens to from the unbeliever, and then in his justice he will uh, provide that knowledge to the unbeliever who has expressed a positive volition in some way. So we've looked at the priority of prayer. Second, we've looked at the prerequisites to prayer. And now we want to look at the procedures in prayer. The procedures in prayer. We won't get through all of this this morning. We'll come back and finish it up next time. But at least we'll get through the first uh, two or three. I use the acronym uh, CATS in order to remember these elements. C-A-T-S. The C stands for confession. The A stands for adoration, praise to God. The T stands for thanksgiving, being thankful or expressing our gratitude to all that God has provided for us in His grace. And the S stands for supplication. Supplication can be further divided into a prayer for others, which is called intercession, or prayer for oneself, which we would call petition. Supplication means to present request to a superior authority. So supplication then is broken down into intercessory prayer and uh, personal petitions. So we have confession, adoration, thanksgiving, and supplication. Now, I've taught a lot about confession, so that is not something that is new for any of us, but it is for some people. They do not realize that a believer out of fellowship is unclean. And The model comes from the Old Testament that before the priest could enter into the uh, holy place, he had to wash his hands and wash his feet. There had to be a cleansing. Uh, every time he came into the presence of God, which symbolized the fact that that as you go through life, you go places, you do things that render you uh, unclean. You commit sin. And as a result of that, there has to be cleansing. This is pictured in the Old Testament with the procedures of the priesthood. The high priest, when he is inaugurated into his role, had to take a complete bath. It was a complete... Cleansing That is analogous to what happens when the believer is saved. There is a complete cleansing of all pre-salvation sin. But after you're saved, you still sin. Every believer still has a sin nature. You do things, you go places, you think things, you say things that come out of your sin nature that break fellowship with our Heavenly Father. So there has to be cleansing, not cleansing. That you lose salvation—that doesn't happen. But that fellowship, that relationship with God, is broken. So that God does not hear those prayers. We have passages such as Psalm sixty-six eighteen, which I, we've already mentioned. But Proverbs fifteen eight says the same kind of thing: the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is his delight. In the parallelism in this verse, there's a contrast between the wicked or the believer that is out of fellowship. Even his sacrifice is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is his delight. There must be a right relationship there. The justice of God must be taken care of in order for prayer to be effective. Proverbs 15.29 the Lord is far from the wicked but he hears the prayer of the righteous and again Proverbs 28 verse 9 he who turns away his ear from listening to the law another way of saying the person who is disobedient to the mandates of scripture even his prayer is an abomination I mean these are firm passages that communicate the principle that an Believer that's out of fellowship doesn't have his prayers heard. But God in grace provides a simple solution, which is 1 John one nine. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The idea of confession simply means to admit or acknowledge sin to God. It doesn't mean to feel sorry for sin. Unfortunately, there are translations that... Uh, want to uh, translate the concept of confess as remorse or somehow feeling sorry for your sin, but that's not what confession means as its core semantic sense. It means simply to admit or acknowledge that you've done something wrong. If you go back to the Old Testament, to uh, passages such as Psalm 32, Psalm 51, where David is confessing his sin or talking about his confession of sin, the words that he uses, the the synonyms that he uses for confession are words such as admit or acknowledge. If you go to court, if you've ever been to traffic court, which is something that's common to maybe many of us here, you go to traffic court and you have a... uh, fine to pay because you were going a little bit too fast and somebody caught you and you've got that two or three hundred dollar fine to pay and you're standing there before the judge and i've had this happen to me on more than one occasion and i'm not really too sorry that i got uh, that i was speeding i'm awfully sorry that i have to pay that two or three hundred dollar fine but there's never been any remorse that i was going too fast in fact when uh when we first moved to Connecticut, I discovered that the the average speed limit on a comparable road in Connecticut compared to Texas was about 15 miles an hour slower than what it is in Texas. Now, you don't realize, you've been driving around for a while, that you, you sort of build in this normal feeling for how fast you're going and and what you can do on a road. So you're on a certain road, and the speed limit in, that you're used to is uh, 60 then you 're used to driving that, but when the speed limit is thirty five or forty, which is completely unreasonable, then you know you 're going to get in trouble before long and just interesting side note just a bit of trivia. the first state in the union to ever impose a a speed limit on its citizens was the state of Connecticut, so they discovered it was a great source of taxation and revenue very early on, and uh, I remember uh, on more than one occasion, the first year I was in Connecticut, suddenly looking in my rear view mirror and realized that I was in trouble again. And I'd go before the judge and there's no remorse there. But the question is asked, did you do this? Yes, I did it. That's confession. It doesn't mean anything more than that. It's simply an admission of guilt. Now in the Christian life, if we have a licentious or lax attitude towards the sin in our life and we confess it, and you know two and a half seconds later we 're committing the same sin again we're we 're just out of fellowship i 'm not suggesting that confession means to treat the sin uh, uh, lightly or in a humorous manner. The reality is that there are times and we 've all been there where we are really angry about a situation or a person or something has happened, and we're we 're dealing with bitterness or frustration or uh, whatever the situation may be and you confess the sin and 1.5 seconds later you're just as angry again as you were before you confessed. and you have to do it again and again and again maybe through the morning you don't get a whole lot done because you just keep having to go back and uh, admit to the Lord I'm angry and I need to leave this situation in your hands and just about the time you say amen you yank it back and you say boy if I see that And It just takes time, but it is that process of discipline that is teaching us to focus on the fact that we have to live a certain way as believers to handle these circumstances. And so sometimes it's not an easy adjustment or an easy growth process, and it's not that confession is a license to sin or it's not something of that nature, and some people use it that way. And I think we all we all do. I've heard people say, well, if, if what you're saying is right, then people can just go sin and then confess it and everything's okay. Well, the problem with that is that that's confusing forgiveness with consequences. And there's a difference between forgiveness and consequences. Americans don't understand this. If you're forgiven... That is something that does not remove the consequences. If you're um take you for example, let's say you're a juvenile and you commit, commit a crime. In many cases in this country, if you're a juvenile, you don't even get your hand slapped because you were, you were a juvenile, and so the penalty is removed. Are the consequences removed? No, they're not. If you whatever the infraction was, there are still consequences from that infraction. Whenever we commit sin, it always has consequences in our spiritual life. We may be forgiven and restored to fellowship, but that doesn't mean that the consequences from our actions are are changed. Any I remember several years ago when uh, uh, Carla Faye Tucker was on death row and was the first woman that Texas had uh, had executed in many years. But while she was in prison waiting for execution. She had become a believer. And so you had all of these pastors who should know better talk about the fact that, well, since she became a Christian, she should not be executed. Well, there are consequences to crime, and her forgiveness before God and her status before God is different from the consequences of her crime and the criminal penalty for the crime. And those are two completely different things, but we have a hard time in our culture separating forgiveness from consequences. I can forgive someone who does something harmful to me, but that doesn't mean that there aren't consequences in the relationship. If someone is, for example, uh, does something, betrays someone, you can forgive them and not have mental attitude sins towards them or anger, hatred, bitterness, or, or vindictiveness. But that doesn't mean that there aren't consequences to the betrayal. I'm not going to go into what they might be. But that is up to you as to what those consequences may or may not be. So there is a difference between forgiveness and consequences. What God tells us is that when we confess our sins... Fellowship is restored. The ministry of God the Holy Spirit in producing spiritual growth is recovered so that we can advance in our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. Now, we may go through divine discipline. We may just go through the natural, normal consequences of our own sinful uh, actions or behavior. Uh, But we're still forgiven and uh, in fellowship with the Lord. So confession is not coming to God with Remorse, promises to God, I won't do it again, Lord. I just got mad and lost my temper. I won't ever do it again, Lord. And He's got such a great sense of humor because the Lord just sits up there and says, Well, in my omniscience, I know that you're going to lose your temper 17,539 more times between now and the end of the year. So don't, uh, don't try to pull the wool over my eyes and thinking that you're going to bargain your way out of this. We get all this human viewpoint mixed up with confession. It is simply an admission of guilt. It is an opportunity for us to recognize personally in a sort of a psychological sense that we have tried to handle the problem on our own, the situation on our own. We're failed. We've got to put our focus back on the Lord. It is a reorientation of our thinking to God's grace provision. And at the same time, there's recovery of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in our lives who's the foundation for everything else in our spiritual growth. So confession is the starting point. Now when we pray, we are to address our prayers to God the Father. This is something that is often not clearly taught and often not understood. You'll hear people sometimes address prayer to the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you'll hear pr- prayer addressed to Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ sometimes people just use the word Lord you're never sure whether they're talking to the Father or to the Son sometimes they're not sure they're just sort of uh, talking to God Uh, but the scriptures make it clear that the Father is the one to whom we address prayer now why do we say that what's the basis for that and I want to point out a couple of scriptures first of all it's part of our priesthood So as a priest, it's addressed to the one ultimately to whom we pray, and that's the Father. Matthew 6, verse 9, which is uh, sometimes called the Lord's Prayer, or uh, if you come from a Roman Catholic background, it's called the Our Father. I never knew that having grown up a Protestant. and wasn't until I was two or three years in the pastor that somebody said, well, you never teach on the Our Father. Uh huh I've got a master's in theology, gone through four years of seminary, been in church all my life. What's the Our Father? I never heard of that before. But that's how uh, the Roman Catholics refer to this. Anyway, this is a model uh, prayer that the Lord gives gave the disciples and it began, Our Father in Heaven. Now some people say, well, of course, when Jesus prayed, He would pray to the Father because He wouldn't be praying to Himself. But there's a reason why The Lord Jesus Christ tells us to address prayer to the Father, and that is that the Father is the ultimate authority within the Trinity. So all prayer goes to the Father. That's part of the priesthood. So we have this as emphasized not only by the Lord Jesus Christ, but also by the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 3.14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.17, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's works. So in each of these passages, it's the Father who's addressed. So we have to recognize that it's the Father we address in prayer because He is the ultimate authority in the Trinity. The second reason that we address prayer to the Father is because both Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the other two members of the Trinity, are intercessors for us. So we don't pray to someone who is already interceding for us. We don't pray to the mediator. We pray to the one to whom he also is praying. Uh, we have passages such as John 14, 13, and 14 that refer to Christ's high priestly ministry of prayer. He says, whatever you ask in my name. See, we pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. It would be, uh, it would be out of order if we pray to Jesus in his own name. So we pray to the Father. He says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. It is the Father who is to be glorified. Again, in John fourteen fourteen, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And then we are to pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians six eighteen, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So we are to pray at all times by means of the Spirit. So in summary, summary we address prayer to the Father. Jesus gave that as his model. Jesus always prayed to the Father, and in His high priestly intercessory ministry, He prays to the Father. The Holy Spirit prays to the Father interceding for us, so we would not pray to the intercessor, the Holy Spirit or the Father. Mary is not an intercessor, by the way, just in case you were confused on that. We just pray to the Father, because He is the ultimate authority in the Trinity. We pray by means of, or in the, excuse me, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. He is the basis upon whom we are able to come to the throne of grace because of his work on the cross. It really doesn't mean that every time we pray, even though we do this traditionally, we close our prayer in the name of Jesus. What that phrase means is that we're coming before the throne of grace on the basis of Jesus' character. It doesn't mean that you always have to end a prayer with this rote, you know, in the name of Jesus or in the name of the one who died on the cross for our sins. There are many different ways people do this. It means that the basis for our coming before the throne of grace is the work of Christ on the cross. We're coming on the basis of who He is and what He has done for us. We're, that's what it means, that phrase, in my name. And we've often... Uh, studied that, that this phrase, you know, believe in the name of Jesus doesn't believe in just a tag, it is in the character, the person of the one, that's what name meant in that culture, it is all that that person represented, so we're coming to the Father on the basis of everything that Jesus Christ did, and we do it in the power of God, the Holy Spirit, Ephesians six eighteen. So this gets us our starting point, we understand that there are prerequisites for prayer, To be saved, first of all. To be in fellowship with God, second of all. We understand that there are certain procedures in prayer that we have to confess our sins so we're in fellowship and we pray to the Father on the basis of the work of Christ on the cross and in the power of God the Holy Spirit. Now that gets us the first part of our acronym CATS. We have confession and then next time we will look at the... Uh, rest of the procedure, adoration, thanksgiving, and supplication, and then close with some principles and promises. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be uh, reminded of the importance of prayer, to have our thinking refreshed about your promises and procedures, that there is a protocol to prayer that should be followed, even though it is intimate conversation it is not just random conversation father we thank you that the basis for our relationship with you is the lord jesus christ who died on the cross as a substitute for our sins Uh, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain Scripture says that salvation is based on faith in Jesus Christ. That means to trust in Him, to rely exclusively upon His finished work on the cross. That He paid the penalty for your sin and that nothing can be added to that. It is sufficient of itself. It is not faith plus uh, improving your life morally. It is not faith plus joining a church. It is not faith plus... Ritual, it is faith alone in Christ alone. At the instant you believe in Jesus Christ, God in his omniscience knows what you are trusting, and at that instant he imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Christ. He justifies you, gives you his eternal life. You're regenerated and a new creature in Christ, and that can never be taken away. Father, we do thank you for what we have learned this morning, with God the Holy Spirit has challenged us with, and we pray that you will help us to understand these things and apply them more consistently in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.